Little Jack Horner sat in the corner, cleaning his 45. He heard Bo Peep was looking for her sheep, and he just wanted to stay alive. Little Boy Blue heard about Peep too, and figured he should come to town. But the Muffin Man had a plan, and he was looking to throw down. With the hey diddle diddle, the cat with the fiddle sold Jack another gun. This one for Jill, so they could kill Peep and stop living on the run. On the Muffin Man's advice, Jack hired the three blind mice so he could flex his muscle a little wider. Then he went to the Tuffet to see Little Miss Muffet and attempt to hire the spider. About this time, while Jack was spending his dime, Bo Peep picked up Little Boy Blue. Blue brought along his horn in case Peep was a little torn whether to let the boy join her crew. They knew where Jack would be when the clock struck three, so off they went to Hickory Dock. But Jack was a little wiser, that's where he sent the spider to give Blue and Peep a nasty shock. The spider kept them busy, firing bullets in a tizzy to keep them from noticing Mary. Her lamb was offed by Peep late last year in his sleep, and Mary was quite contrary. They got out of there alive, but the clock had just struck five, and Jack was nowhere to be found. But there was one more place where Peep could find her ace. She knew where Jack had gone to ground. Blue and Peep got to the hill, but everything was still. Not a creature was stirring in sight. Baba Black Sheep called out a furious peep, trying to goad Jack into a fight. Hidden nearby, the Muffin Man did spy, getting ready to spring his ploy. He intently watched the hill, waiting for Gilly Jill to show up with her boy. They finally came around and had the mice surround Bo Peep and Little Boy Blue. That's when Muffin aimed his rifle, and both their hearts he did stifle as each of his bullets shot true. The sudden turn stunned everyone, but the Muffin wasn't done as he readied his grand finale. The children of the shoe knew just what to do and unleashed hell from the nearby alley. The city had gone to shit since old Cole had quit, and the Muffin Man had to restore the peace. He had watched and lain in wait for this very exact date, when he could force all these hostilities to cease. The children lit the night with their machine gun might, and the Muffin Man watched in laughter. As Jack fell down and broke his crown, and Jill came tumbling after.
Hello and welcome to The Mayorzine, an audio magazine of vintage and not-so-vintage fiction curated and narrated by me, your host, Chris Mayer. In this case, also written by me. That one's podcast-only as well, so you won't find it on the Patreon or in the Omnibus. I wrote it earlier this year after buying my new microphone. I wanted to do a shootout between that one and the one I was currently using. A shootout is basically just recording something with two mics to hear the difference. It was just for curiosity, since I love, love, love my new mic and already knew it was better than the old one. Anyway, I wanted to do something fun and silly and thought maybe a nursery rhyme, you know, alternate the verses between the microphones. I don't remember what I was doing when my brain came up with that first verse, but it intrigued me, so I gave it permission to continue. A couple days later, I had Nurseryland Shootout. Turns out it makes a pretty good theme for our mayorzine issue. I'll let you figure out what it is, though. That's half the fun of curating this stuff. Before we continue on, I wanted to wish everyone a happy Hanukkah. By the time this airs, it'll be pretty much over, but I hope it was a good one for you if you celebrate. I was trying to find a Hanukkah story, but my search foo didn't turn up a lot of Jewish fiction from the public domain. It was mostly non-fiction stuff, essays and histories and such. Instead, I found a Hanukkah-adjacent piece meaning that it takes place during Hanukkah, and that's pretty much the only connection. But it fits into this week's theme pretty nicely. You'll get that just a little later. For now, though, we're going to take a brief departure, because I found this lovely story by the Danish novelist Carl Ewald. At least that's how I think you pronounce his last name. I couldn't really find any sort of reference. I'm not entirely sure when it was first published, but it was right around the turn of the century since he died in 1905. This is an excerpt from a longer story about the four princes of the seasons, and I thought it appropriate as autumn turns into winter during this month of December. So I'm just going to shoehorn it in and we'll go back to the planned episode afterwards. Come with me now to meet Prince Autumn. Prince Autumn By Carl Ewald On the top of the hills in the west stood the Prince of Autumn and surveyed the land with his serious eyes. His hair and beard were dashed with gray and there were wrinkles on his forehead. But he was good to look at, still and straight and strong. His splendid cloak gleamed red and green and brown and yellow and flapped in the wind. In his hand, he held a horn. He smiled sadly and stood a while and listened to the fighting and the singing and the cries. Then he raised his head, put the horn to his mouth, and blew a lusty flourish. Summer goes his all-prospering way, autumn's horn is calling. Heather dresses the brown hill clay, winds whip crackling across the bay, leaves in the grove keep falling. All the trees of the forest shook from root to top, themselves not knowing why. All the birds fell silent together. The stag in the glade raised his antlers in surprise and listened. The poppy's scarlet petals flew before the wind. But high on the mountains, and on the bare hills, and low down in the bog, the heather burst forth and blazed purple and glorious in the sun. 
and the bees flew from the faded flowers of the meadow and hid themselves in the heather fields. But Autumn put his horn to his mouth again and blew. Autumn lords it with banners bright of garish leaves held o'er him, quelling summer's eternal fight, heralding winter wild and white, while the blithe little birds flee before him. The Prince of Summer stopped where he stood in the valley and raised his eyes to the hills in the west, and the Prince of Autumn took the horn from his mouth and bowed low before him. Welcome, said Summer. He took a step towards him and no more, as befits one who is the greater. But the Prince of Autumn came down over the hills and again bowed low. They walked through the valley hand in hand, and so radiant was Summer that wherever they passed none was aware of Autumn's presence. The notes of his horn died away in the air, and one and all were covered from the shudder that had passed over them. The trees and birds and flowers came to themselves again and whispered and sang and fought. The river flowed, the rushes murmured, the bees continued their summer orgy in the heather. But wherever the princes stopped on their progress through the valley, it came about that the foliage turned yellow on the side where autumn was. A little leaf fell from its stalk and fluttered away and dropped at his feet. The nightingale ceased singing, though it was eventide. The cuckoo was silent and flapped restlessly through the woods. The stork stretched himself in his nest and looked toward the south, but the princes took no heed. Welcome, said Summer again. Do you remember your promise? I remember, answered Autumn. Then the Prince of Summer stopped and looked out over the kingdom, where the noise was gradually subsiding. Do you hear them? he asked. Now do you take them into your gentle keeping. I shall bring your produce home, said Autumn. I shall watch carefully over them that dream. I shall cover up lovingly them that are to sleep in the mold. I will warn them thrice of winter's coming. It is well, said Summer. They walked in silence for a time, while night came forth. The honeysuckle's petals fell when you blew your horn, said Summer. Some of my children will die at the moment when I leave the valley, but the nightingale and the cuckoo and the stork I shall take with me. Again the two princes walked in silence. It was quite still. Only the owls hooted in the old oak. You must send my birds after me, said Summer. I shall not forget, replied Autumn. Then the Prince of Summer raised his hand in farewell, and bade Autumn take possession of the kingdom. I shall go tonight, he said, and none will know save you. My splendor will linger in the valley for a while, and by the by when I am far away and my reign is forgotten, the memory of me will revive once more with the sun and the pleasant days. Then he strode away in the night. But from the high treetop came the stork on his long wings, and the cuckoo fluttered out of the tall woods, and the nightingale flew from the thicket with her full-grown young. The air was filled with the soft murmurings of wings. Autumn's dominion had indeed begun on the night when summer went away, with a yellow leaf here and a brown leaf there, but none had noticed it. Now it went at a quicker pace, and as time wore on, there came even more colors and greater splendor. The lime trees turned bright yellow, and the beech bronze, but the elder tree even blacker than it had been. The bell-flower rang with white bells where it used to ring with blue, and the chestnut-tree blessed all the world with its five yellow fingers. The mountain ash shed its leaves that all might admire its pretty berries. The wild rose nodded with a hundred hips, 
The Virginia creeper broke over the hedge in blazing flames. Then Autumn put his horn to his mouth and blew. The loveliest things of Autumn's pack in his motley coffers lay. Red mountain berries, hips sweet as cherries, sloes blue and black he hung upon every spray. And blackbird and thrush chattered blithely in the copsewood, which gleamed with berries, and a thousand sparrows kept them company. The wind ran from one to the other and puffed and panted to add to the fun. High up in the sky the sun looked gently down upon it all, and the Prince of Autumn nodded contentedly and let his motley cloak flap in the wind. I am the least important of the four seasons and am scarcely lord in my own land, he said. I serve two jealous masters and have to please them both, but my power extends so far that I can give you a few glad days. Then he put his horn to his mouth and blew. To the valley revelers high, they are clad in autumnal fancy dresses, they are weary of green and faded tresses. Summer has vanished, winter is nigh, hey, fold a roll day for autumn. But the night after this happened, there was tremendous disturbance up on the mountain peaks, where the eternal snows had lain both in spring's time and summer's. It sounded like a storm approaching. The trees grew frightened. The crows were silent. The wind held its breath. Prince Autumn bent forward and listened. Is that the worst you can do? shouted a hoarse voice through the darkness. Autumn raised his head and looked straight into Winter's great cold eyes. Have you forgotten the bargain? asked Winter. No, replied Autumn. I have not forgotten it. Have a care, shouted Winter. The whole night through it rumbled and tumbled in the mountains. It turned so bitterly cold that the starling thought seriously of packing up, and even the red creeper turned pale. The distant peaks glittered with new snow, and the Prince of Autumn laughed no more. He looked out earnestly over the land, and the wrinkles in his forehead grew deeper. It must be so, then, he said. Then he blew his horn. Autumn's horn blew a lusty chime, for the second time, for the second time. Heed well the call, complying, fling seed to earth, fill sacks full girth, plump back and side, pad belt and hide, hold all wings close for flying. Then suddenly a terrible bustle arose in the land, for now they all understood. Quick, said Autumn. The poppy and the bellflower and the pink stood thin and dry as sticks with their heads full of seed. The dandelion had presented each one of his seeds with a sweet little parachute. Come, dear wind, and shake us, said the poppy. Fly away with my seeds, wind, said the dandelion. And the wind hastened to do as they asked. But the beech cunningly dropped his shaggy fruit onto the hare's fur, and the fox got one also on his red coat. Quick now, said Autumn. There's no time here to waste. The little brown mice filled their parlors from floor to ceiling with nuts and beech mast and acorns. The hedgehog had already eaten himself so fat that he could hardly lower his quills. The hare and fox and stag put on clean white woolen things under their coats. The starling and the thrush and the blackbird saw to their downy clothing and exercised their wings for the long journey. The sun hid himself behind the clouds and did not appear for many days. It began to rain. The wind quickened its pace. It dashed the rain over the meadow, whipped the river into foam, and whistled through the trunks in the forest. Now the song is finished, said the Prince of Autumn. 
Then he put his horn to his mouth and blew. Autumn's horn blew a lusty chime for the last time, for the last time. Ways close when need is sorest, land birds fly clear, plunge frogs in mirror, be lock your lair, take shelter bare, fall last leaf in the forest. And then it was over. The birds flew from the land in flocks, the starling and the lapwing, the thrush and the blackbird all migrated to the south. Every morning before the sun rose, the wind tore through the forest and pulled the last leaves off the trees. Every day the wind blew stronger, snapped great branches, swept the withered leaves together into heaps, scattered them again, and at last laid them like a soft, thick carpet over the whole floor of the forest. The hedgehog crawled so far into a hole under a heap of stones that he remained caught between two of them and could move neither forwards nor backwards. The sparrow took lodgings in a deserted swallow's nest. The frogs went to the bottom of the pond for good, settled in the mud, with the tips of their noses up in the water and prepared for whatever might come. The Prince of Autumn stood and gazed over the land to see if it was bare and waste so that winter's storms might come buffeting at will and the snow lie wherever it pleased. Then he stopped before the old oak and looked at the ivy that clambered right up to the top and spread her green leaves as if winter had no existence at all. And while he looked at it, the ivy flowers blossomed. They sat right at the top and rocked in the wind. Now I'm coming! roared winter from the mountains. My clouds are bursting with snow, and my storms are breaking loose. I can restrain them no longer. The Prince of Autumn bent his head and listened. He could hear the storm come rushing down over the mountains. A snowflake fell upon his motley cloak, and another, and yet another. For the last time he put his horn to his mouth and blew. Thou greenest plant and tardiest, thou fairest, rarest, hardiest, Bright through unending hours, round summer, winter, autumn, spring, thy vigorous embraces cling. Look, ivy mine, tis I who sing, tis autumn wins thy flowers. Then he went away in the storm. All right, back to our Jackson Jills. Here's the it'll have to do Hanukkah story I was talking about earlier. And honestly, this may have more to do with Hanukkah than I realize, since I'm not Jewish and never really learned about the holiday beyond a Wikipedia article. Originally published in 1903, it was written by Rudolf Edgar Bloch, a Jewish journalist and columnist who wrote short stories chronicling life in the New York Jewish ghetto under the pen name Bruno Lessing. I want to include more of his work. These stories are really good, but I don't think I'm the right person to read them. Hopefully in the very near future, I can bring in a guest narrator to do these justice. For now, you'll have to make do with me. Time for Hanukkah Lights.
Hanukkah Lights by Bruno Lessing Somewhere in transit, he had lost all his letters, papers, credentials, cards, all belongings, in fact, that might have established his identity. He said he was David Parnes and that he had come from Pest. And as he was tall and straight, with fine black eyes and curling black hair, a somewhat dashing presence, and the most charming manners, he soon made friends, particularly among the women. For in Houston Street, as elsewhere, the fair sex rarely looks behind a pleasing personality for credentials of character. Yuli, the waitress and the maid of all work in Weiss's coffee house, felt the blood surge to her face when first she beheld him. And when, for the first time, he gave her Trinkgeld and a smile, all the blood rushed back to her heart. After that, Yuli was his slave. All day long she waited for him to come. When he had gone, the place seemed dark, and the music of the gypsy band grated upon her. While he was there, usually sitting alone and sipping coffee and staring into vacancy, like a man whose mind is busy with many schemes, her heart beat faster, and life seemed glad. Yuli was plain, painfully plain, but there was a charm about her that had won the admiration of many of the patrons of the place some of whom had even offered her marriage. But she had only laughed and had declared that she would never marry. Sometimes these incidents came to the ear of Esther, the daughter of the proprietor, and made her heart burn. For Esther was fair to look upon, and yet had reached and passed her twentieth year without a single offer of marriage. With all her beauty, the girl was absolutely devoid of charm. There was something even in the tone of her voice that repelled men probably a reflection of her arrogance and selfishness. Then, one day, Yuli beheld her talking to David, saw that her face was animated and that David's eyes were fastened intently upon her. In Esther's eyes, she read that story which between woman and woman is an open book. When her work was finished that night, Yuli hastened to her room and, throwing herself upon the bed, burst into a flood of weeping. The affair progressed rapidly. There were times when Yuli, after serving him with coffee, would stand silently behind David, gazing upon him intently, yearning to throw her arms around that curly head and cry, I love you, I am your slave. But these became rarer and rarer, for Esther demanded more and more of his presence, and it was seldom that he sat alone in the coffee house. Yuli had never seen him manifest any of those lover-like demonstrations toward Esther that might have been expected under the circumstances but she attributed this to his pride. Probably, she thought, when they were alone, beyond the reach of prying eyes, he kissed her and caressed her to her heart's content. The thought of it wore on her spirit. And when, one day, Esther told her that they were to be married at the end of a month, Yuli turned pale and trembled, and then hurried to her room. A few days after this announcement had been publicly made and congratulations had begun to pour in from the many patrons of the establishment who had known Esther from childhood, Yuli observed a change in David's demeanor. He seemed suddenly to have become worried. He would come to the coffee house late at night after Esther had retired and sit alone over his coffee, 
brooding. Yuli's duties permitted her to leave at nine o'clock, but if David had not come at that hour, she continued to work, even until midnight, the closing time, in the hope that she would see him enter. He rarely spoke to her, rarely noticed her, in fact, but Yuli, in her heart, had established an intimacy between them. An intimacy? Rather a world of love and devotion, in which, alas, she lived alone with a shadow. She was quick to see the change that had come over him, and she longed to speak to him, to implore him to confide in her. Was it money? She had led a frugal life and had saved the greater part of her earnings for years. She would not trust her pittance to the banks. It was all in a trunk in her room, and he was welcome to it. Was it service that he needed? She was a slave ready to do his bidding. The tears came into her eyes to see that face upon which light and laughter sat so gracefully, now cast down with gloom. But David worried on in silence, and left the place without a word. Then for several days he did not come at all. Esther told her that he had been called out of town on business. Did, did he not look worried when last you saw him? Yuli asked, timidly. Esther's eyes opened in surprise. Why, no, I did not notice that he looked any different. Yuli sighed. That night there came to one of her tables a brisk, sharp-eyed little man whose manner and accent betokened a new arrival from Hungary. He bowed politely to Yuli, praised her skill in waiting upon him, and complimented her upon her hair, which she wore flat upon her head after the fashion of the peasant girls of Hungary. He gave her liberal trinkelt and bowed courteously when he departed. The next evening he returned and greeted her as a newly made acquaintance. They chatted pleasantly a while, he had much news from the mother country that interested her, and then, quite by the way, did she happen to know a young man, tall and straight, quite good-looking, black eyes and curling hair, a very pleasant chap, extremely popular with the girls. A friend had told him that he would find this young man somewhere in the Hungarian colony. Did she know anyone who answered that description? His eyes were turned from her. He was watching the gypsies playing. It was all quite casual. It is said that love creates a sixth sense. In a flash, Yuli's whole nature shrank from this man and stood at arms ready for battle. This was no friend in search of a boon companion. This was an enemy, a mortal enemy of David. She felt it, knew it as positively as if she had seen him fly at David's throat. Fortunately, the man had not observed the pallor that overspread her countenance. No, I do not remember having seen such a man. He never comes here, or I would have remembered him. That night was the beginning of the Feast of Hanukkah the only feast at which the penitential psalms were omitted, lest they might mar the joyfulness of the celebration. Esther was away, and it was Yuli's duty to light the candles in the living room overhead. The sun was fast sinking, but the light of day still lingered in the sky. Yuli felt that it might be sacrilegious to hasten so holy a function, but a sudden nervous dread had come over her, and there was fear in her heart. I will light the candles now, she said. Then I will wait outside in the street, and if he comes, I will warn him. Swiftly, lightly, she sped up the stairs to the living room. The door was open, and the light from the hall lamp shone dimly into the furthest corner, where, with his back turned to the door, stood, or rather knelt, David Parnes, before a desk in which the coffeehouse proprietor kept his money. 
Yuli recoiled, shocked, horrified. Then swift as a lightning stroke came full revelation. He was a thief. She had always suspected something like that. And she loved him, adored him more than ever at this moment. Yuli was an honest girl, an honest peasant girl, descended from a long line of peasants, all as honest as the day. But the world was against the man she loved. Honesty? To the winds with honesty. With a rush, she was at his side. Listen, she whispered excitedly. There is the key, over there on the wall. The money is in the top drawer. Take it and fly. There is a man below from Hungary looking for you. I told him you did not come here. You can get away before he finds you. I will never tell. I swear I will never tell. Quick, you must fly. The young man had turned quickly when she entered, but after that he had not moved. He was still upon one knee. Had a thunderbolt fallen from the ceiling, he could not have been more astonished. He looked at Yuli in bewilderment. Wait, she cried. I will be back in a second. Open the desk and take all the money, and then I will be back. It seemed to him but an instant. Yuli had gone and had returned. He was still kneeling, almost petrified with amazement. Yuli held out an old, stained leather pocketbook. It is all mine, she whispered. Take it. Run. You must not wait. Slowly he rose to his feet. Once or twice he passed his hand over his eyes as if he feared he was dreaming. Yuli? There was a world of incredulity, of bewilderment, of questioning in his voice. Oh, do not stay, cried the poor girl. They will be looking for you. Go before it is too late. Go far away. They will never find you. I do not understand, he said slowly. What does it mean? A sudden weakness overcame Yuli, and she burst into tears. He advanced toward her. Why are you doing this? he asked. Yuli could not speak. Her frame was convulsed with sobbing. The tears were streaming down her cheeks. David, open-mouthed, stood gazing at her. The pocketbook had fallen from her hand, and a small heap of banknotes had slipped from it. David looked at them, then at her. Slowly he advanced to where she stood. As gently as he could, he drew her hands from her face and turned her head toward the light in the hall. Yuli? The blood coursed to her cheeks. Her gaze fell. She tore herself from his clasp. For God's sake, go! she cried. He restored the money to the pocketbook and placed it in her hands. Then he started toward the door. You will not take it? she asked piteously. It is all mine. I give it to you freely. Borrow it if you like. Some day you can send it back. He shook his head, stood irresolute for a moment, then returned to her. Yuli, he whispered, my mother is dead, but in heaven she is blessing you. Then he kissed her upon the forehead and walked determinedly out of the room. Yuli stood swaying to and fro for a moment, then tottered and fell to the floor. David stood on the stairs a full minute, breathing heavily, like a man who has been running. Then his teeth clicked tightly together. He drew a long breath, walked briskly down the steps, and strode into the brilliantly lighted coffee house. He knew the man at once. He had never seen him before, but unerring instinct pointed out his pursuer. He walked straight toward him. When do we start for Pest? he asked.
The man eyed him narrowly, gazed at him thoughtfully for a moment, then his face lit up. By the next steamer, if you like, was all he said. David nodded. Good, he said. Then, after a moment's hesitation, will you come upstairs with me for a moment? Without a word, the man accompanied him. They found Yuli, pale as a ghost, standing at the mantel, lighting the Hanukkah candles. When she beheld David with his captor, she screamed and would have fallen had not David sprung forward and caught her in his arms. Listen, he said, speaking rapidly. I am going back. My name is not David Parnes. I will write in a few days and tell you everything. They will send me to prison. In two or three years I shall be free. Then I am coming back for you. He held her in his arms for one brief moment, kissed her again on the forehead, and was gone. Then the tears came afresh to Yuli's eyes. But through her veins coursed a tumult of joy. One more story to round out this week's issue. I know, I'm spoiling you. Usually it's just two or maybe three, but four pieces. It's an abundance of riches. But they're all pretty short, so we're staying in our time slot. One last Jack and Jill to end the hour with. I had not known of Bernard Capes before now, and prepping this story... I thought he was French, since the main characters seem to be French, and indeed throw in French words and phrases into the dialogue. But it turns out he's English, from London. I did enjoy this story, and am looking forward to including more of his work. This one is also from around the same time, published in 1899, though I did abridge it somewhat to remove some superfluous French phrases that I otherwise would have mangled. My French is atrocious. Jack and Jill went up the hill, climbing on a glacier. Jack fell down through the ice and... Well, you'll see. Jack and Jill by Bernard Capes My friend absolutely declines to append his name to these pages, of which he is the virtual author. Nevertheless, he permits me to publish them anonymously, being indeed a little curious to ascertain what would have been the public verdict as to his sanity had he given his personal imprimatur to a narrative on the face of it so incredible. How, he says, should I have believed it of another, when I have such astonishing difficulty at this date in realizing that it was I, yes I, my friend, this same little callow poupon that was an actual hero of the adventure. Fidel, by which term we covered the identity of his wife, Fidel will laugh in my face sometimes, crying, Not thou, little cabbage, nor yet thy faithful, was it that dived through half the world and came up breathless. No, no, I cannot believe it. We folk, so matter-of-fact and so comical. It was of Hansel and Gretel we had been reading hand in hand till we fell asleep in the twilight and fancied this thing. 
and then she will trill like a bird at the thought of how solemn Herr Grabenstock of the Hotel du Mont Blanc would have stared and edged apart had we truly recounted to him that which had befallen us between the rising and the setting of a sun. We go forth, it rains, my faith as it will in the Chamonix Valley, and we return in the evening sucked. Very natural, but for a first cause of our wedding. Ah, there we must be fastidious of an explanation, or we shall find ourselves in peril of restraint. Now write this for me, and believe it if you can. We are not in a conspiracy of imagination, I and the dear courageous. Therefore I do write it, speaking in the person of my friend, and largely from his dictation. And my friend shall amuse himself over the nature of its reception. One morning, it was in late May, says my friend, my Fidel and I left the Hotel du Mont Blanc for a ramble amongst the hills. We were a little adventurous because we were innocent. We took no guide but our common sense, and that served us very ill, or very well according to the point of view. Ours was that of the birds, singing to the sky and careless of the snake in the grass so long as they can pipe their tune. Of a surety that is the only course. If one would make provision against every chance of accident, one must dematerialize. To die is the only way to secure oneself from fatality. Still, it is a wise precaution, I will admit, not to eat of all hedge fruit because blackberries are sweet. Some day after the fiftieth stomach ache, we shall learn wisdom, my Fidel and I. Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. That, I know, comes into the English gospel. Well, I will tell you, I am content to be considered of the first, and my Fidel is assuredly of the second. Yet did she fear, or I rush in? On the contrary, I have a little laughing thought that it was the angel invade against the dullness of caution when the fool would have hesitated. Now, it was before the season of the Alps, and the mountain albergistes were for the most part not arrived at their desolate hill taverns, nor were guides at all in evidence, being yet engaged, the sturdy souls, over their winter occupations. One, no doubt, we could have procured had we wished it, but we did not. We would explore under the aegis of no Cicerone but our curiosity. That was native to us if the district was strange. Following, at first, the instructions of Herr Baedeker, we traveled and climbed, chattering and singing as we went, in the direction of the Monten Vert whence we were to descend upon the Mer de Glace and enjoy the spectacle of a stupendous glacier. And that, I am convinced, said Fidel, is nothing more or less than one of those many windows that give light to the monsters of the under-earth. Little imbecile, in some places this window is six hundred feet thick. So, she said, that is because their dim eyes could not endure the full light of the sun. We had brought a tin box of sandwiches with us, and this, with my large pewter flask full of wine, was slung upon my back. For we had been told that the Hotel du Montenvert was yet closed, and sure enough when we reached it, the building stood black in a pool of snow, its shuttered windows forlorn, and long icicles hung from the eaves. The depression induced by this sight was momentary. We turned from it to the panorama of majestic loveliness that stretched below and around us. The glacier, that rolling sea of glass, descended from the enormous gates of the hills. Its source was the white furnace of the skies, its substance the crystal refuse of the stars, and from its margins the splintered peaks stood up in a thousand forms of beauty. Right and left in the hollows of the mountains the mist lay like ponds, opal and translucent. 
and the shafts of the pine trees standing in it looked like the reflections of themselves. It made the eyes ache, this silence of greatness, and it became a relief to shift one's gaze to the reality of one's near neighborhood, the grass and the rhododendron bushes, and even the dull walls of the deserted auberge. A narrow path dipped over the hillside and fled into the very jaws of the moraine. Down the first of this path we raced, hand in hand, but soon, finding the impetus overmastering us, we pulled up with difficulty and descended the rest of the way circumspectly. At the foot of the steep slope, we came upon the little wooden hutch where ordinarily one may procure a guide, also rough socks to stretch over one's boots, for the passage of the glacier. Now, however, the shed was closed and tenantless, and we must e'en dispense with a conductor should we adventure further. Herr Bedecker says guide unnecessary for the experienced. Fidel, are we experienced? We shall be, mon ami, when we have crossed. A guide could not alter that. But it is true, ma petite. Come, then. We clambered down amongst huge stones. Fidel's little feet went in and out of the crannies like sand martins. Suddenly, before we realized it, we were on the glacier. Fidel exclaimed, Mon Dieu! Is this ice, these blocks of dirty alabaster? Alas, she was justified. This torrent of majestic crystal, seen from above so smooth and bountiful, a flood of the milk of nature dispensed from the white bosom of the hills. Now, near at hand, what do we find it? A medley of opaque blocks smeared with grit and rubbish, a vast ruin of avalanches hurled together and consolidated, and the color of rock salt. Pest! I cried. We must get to the opposite bank for all that. We clasped hands and set forth on our little traversée, our landmark an odd-shaped needle of spar on the further side. My faith, it was simple. The paviers of nature had left the road a trifle rough, that was all. Suddenly we came upon a wide fissure stretched obliquely like the mouth of a soul. Going glibly, we learnt a small lesson of caution therefrom. Six paces and we should have tumbled in. We looked over fearfully. Here, in truth, was real ice at last, green as bottle glass at the edges, and melting into unfathomable deeps of glowing blue. In a moment, with a shriek like that of escaping steam, a windy demon leapt at us from the underneath. It was all of winter in a breath. It seemed to shrivel the skin from our faces, the flesh from our bones. We staggered backwards. Mon ami! Mon ami! cried Fidel. My heart is a stone. My eyes are two blisters of water. We danced as the blood returned unwilling to our veins. It was minutes before we could proceed. Afterwards, I learned that these hellish eruptions of air betoken a change of temperature. It was coming then shortly in a dense rainfall. When we were recovered, we sought about for a way to circumambulate the crevasse. Then we remarked that up a huge boulder of ice that had seemed to block our path, recent steps or toe-holes had been cut. In a twinkling, we were over. Fidel, uh, no, a woman never falls. For all this, she says, shaking her head, I maintain that a guide here is a sinecurist. Well, we made the passage safely and toiled up the steep, loose moraine beyond to find the track over which was harder than crossing the glacier. But we did it and struck the path along the hillside, which leads by the mauvais pas, the mauvais carte d'air, to the little cabaret called the Chapeau. This tavern, too, was shut and dismal. It did not matter. 
We sat like sparrows on a railing, and munched our egg sandwiches, and drank our wine in a sort of glorious stupefaction. For right opposite us was the vast glacier fall, whose crashing foam was towers and parapets of ice that went over and rolled into the valley below a ruin of thunder. Far beyond, where the mouth of the gorge spread out, littered with monstrous destruction, we saw the hundred threads of the glacier streams collect into a single rope of silver that went drawn between the hills a highway of water. It was all a majestic panorama of gray and pearly white, the sky, the torrents, the mountains. But the blue and rusty green of the stone pines, flung abroad in hanging woods and coppices, broke up and distributed the infinite serenity of the snowfields. Presently, having drunk deep of rich content, we rose to retrace our steps. For, spurred by vanity, we must be returning the way we had come to show our confident experience of glaciers. All went well. Actually, we had passed over near two-thirds of the ice bed when a touch on my arm stayed me, and Mami looked into my eyes, very comical and insolent. Little cabbage, she said, will you not put your new knowledge to account? But how, my soul? She laughed and pressed my arm to her side. Her heart fluttered like a nestling after its first flight. To rest on the little prowess of a small adventure? No, no! Shall he who has learnt to swim be always content to bathe in shallow water? I was speechless as I gazed on her. Behold, then, she cried. We have opposed ourselves to this problem of the ice, and we have mastered it. See how it rears itself to the inaccessible peaks, the which to reach the poor innocents expend themselves over rocks and drifts. But why should one not climb the mountain by way of the glacier? Fidel, I gasped. Ah, she exclaimed, nodding her head, but poor men, they are mules. They spill their blood on the scaling ladders when the town gate is open. Again, I cried, Fidel. But yes, she said, it needs a woman to see. It is but two o'clock. Let us ascend the glacier like a staircase, and presently we shall stand upon the summit of the mountain. Those last little peaks above the ice can be of no importance. I was touched, astounded by the sublimity of her idea. Had no one then ever thought of this before? We began the ascent. I swear we must have toiled upwards half a mile when the catastrophe took place. It was raining then, a dense, small mist, and the ice was as if it had been greased. We were proceeding with infinite care, arm in arm, tucked close together. A little doubt, I think, was beginning to oppress us. We could move only with much caution and difficulty, and there were noises, sounds like the clapping of great hands in those rocky attics above us. Then there would come a slamming report, as if the window of the unknown had been burst open by demons, and the moans of the lost would issue, surging down upon the world. These thunders, as we were afterwards told, are caused by the splitting of the ice when there comes a fall in the barometer. Then the glacier will yawn like a sliced junket. My faith, what a simile! But again, the point of view, my friend. All in a moment, I heard a little cluck. I looked down. Alas, the fine spirit was obscured. Fidel was weeping. Chut, chut, I exclaimed in consternation. We will go back at once. She struggled to smile, the poor mignon. It is only that my knees are sick, she said piteously. I took her in my strong arms tenderly. We had paused on a ridge of hard snow. 
There came a tearing clang, an enormous sucking sound, as of wet lips opening. The snow sank under our feet. My God! shrieked Fidel. I held her convulsively. It happened in an instant, before one could leap aside. The bed of snow on which we were standing broke down into the crevasse it had bridged and led us through to the depths. Will you believe what follows? Pinch your nose and open your mouth. You shall take the whole draft at a breath. The ice at the point where we entered was five hundred feet thick, and we fell to the very bottom of it. Ha ha, is it difficult to swallow? But it is true. It is quite true. Here I sit, sound and safe, and eminently sane, and that after a fall of five hundred feet. Now listen. We went down, welded together, with a rush and a buzz like a cannonball. Thoughts? Ah, my friend, I had none. Who can think even in a high wind? And here the wind of our going would have brained an ox. Only one desperate instinct I had, one little forlorn remnant of humanity, to shield the love of my heart. So my arms never left her, and we fell together. I dreaded nothing, feared nothing, foresaw no terror in the inevitable mangling crash of the end. For time, that is necessary to emotion, was annihilated. We had outstripped it, and left sense and reason sluggishly following in our wake. Sense, yes, but not altogether sensation. Flashingly, I was conscious here of incredibly swift transitions, from cold to deeper wells of frost, thence down through a stratum of death and negation, between mere blind walls of frigid inhumanity. To have been stayed a moment by which would have pointed all our limbs as stiff as icicles, as stiff as those of frogs plunged into boiling water. But we passed and fell, still crashing upon no obstruction, and thought pursued us, tailing further behind. It was the passage of the eternal night, frozen, self-contained, awful as any fancied darkness that is without one tradition of a star. Yet struggling hereafter, to in some shadowy sense renew my feelings of the moment, it seemed to me that I had not fallen through darkness at all but rather that the friction of descent had kindled an inner radiance in me that was independent of the vision of the eyes, and full of promise of a sudden illumination of the soul. Now, after falling what depths God knows, I become numbly aware of a little gritting sensation at my back that communicated a whistling small vibration to my whole frame. This intensified, became more pronounced. Perceptibly, in that magnificent refinement of speed, our enormous pace I felt to decrease ever so little. Still, we had so far outstripped intelligence as that I was incapable of considering the cause of the change. Suddenly, for the first time, pain made itself known, and immediately reason, plunging from above, overtook me, and I could think. Then it was I became conscious that instead of falling, we were rising, rising with immense swiftness, but at a pace that momently slackened, rising, slipping over ice and in contact with it. The muscles of my arms, clasped still about Fidel, involuntarily swelled to her. My God, there was a tiny answering pressure. I could have screamed with joy, but physical anguish overmastered me. My back seemed bursting into flame. The suffering was intolerable. When at last I thought I should go mad, in a moment we took a surging swoop, shot down an easy incline, and stopped. There had been noise in our descent, as only now I knew by its cessation, a hissing sound as of wire whirring from a drawplate. 
in the profound enormous silence that at last enwrapped us, the bliss of freedom from that metallic accompaniment fell on me like a balm. My eyelids closed. Possibly I fainted. All in a moment I came to myself, to an undefinable sense of the tremendous pressure of nothingness, darkness. It was not that, yet it was as little light. It was as if we lay in a dim, luminous chaos, ourselves an integral part of its self-containment. I did not stir, but I spoke, and my strange voice broke the enchantment. Surely never before or since was speech exchanged under such conditions. Fidel, I can speak, but I cannot look. If I hide so forever, I can die bravely. Ma petite, oh, my little one, are you hurt? I don't know. I think not. Her voice, her dear voice was so odd. But mon Dieu, how wonderful in its courage. That, heaven be praised, is no monopoly of intellect. Indeed, it is imagination that makes men cowards. And to the lack of this, possibly we owed our salvation. Now, calm and freed of that halting jar of descent, I became conscious that a sound that I had at first taken for the rush of my own arteries had an origin apart from us. It was like the wash and thunder of waters in a deep sewer. Fidel, I said again, I am listening. Here, then, canst thou free my right arm, that I may feel for the lucifers in my pocket? She moved at once, never raising her face from my breast. I groped for the box, found it, and manipulating with one hand, succeeded in striking a match. It flamed up, a long wax vesta. A glory of sleek fires sprang on the instant into life. We lay imprisoned in a house of glass at the foot of a smooth incline rising behind us to unknown heights. A wall of porous and opaque ice rubbish into which our feet had plunged deep had stayed our progress. I placed the box by my side ready for use. Our last moments should be lavish of splendor. Stooping for another match to kindle from the flame of the near-expired one, a thought struck me. Why had we not been at once frozen to death? Yet we lay where we had brought up, as snug and glowing as if we were wrapped in bedclothes. The answer came to me in a flash. We had fallen sheer to the glacier bed, which, warmed by subterraneous heat, was ever in process of melting. Possibly, but a comparatively thin curtain of perforated ice separated us from the undertorrent. The enforced conclusion was astounding, but as yet it inspired no hope. We were nonetheless doomed and buried. I lit a second match, turned about, and gave a start of terror. There, embedded in the transparent wall at my very shoulder, was something, the body of a man. A horrible sight, a horrible, horrible sight, crushed, flattened, a caricature. The very gouts of blood that had burst from him held poised in the massed congelations of water. For how long ages had he been traveling to the valley, and from what heights? He was of a bygone generation, by his huge coat cuffs, his metal buttons, by his shoe buckles and the white stockings on his legs, which were pressed thin and sharp, as if cut out of paper. Had he been a climber, an explorer? And what had been his unrecorded fate? To slip into a crevasse and so for the parted ice to snap upon him again, like a hideous jaw? Its work done, it might at least have opened and dropped him through not held him intact to jog us out of all that world of despair with his battered elbow. Perhaps to witness in others the fate he had himself suffered. I dropped the match I was holding, 
I tightened my clasp convulsively about Fidel. Thank God she, at any rate, was blind to this horror within a horror. All at once, was it the start I had given, or the natural process of dissolution beneath our feet? We were moving again. Swift, swifter. Fidel uttered a little moaning cry. The rubbish of ice crashed below us, and we sank through. I knew nothing then but that we were in water, that we had fallen from a little height and were being hurried along. The torrent, now deep, now so shallow that my feet scraped its bed, gushed in my ears and blinded my eyes. Still I hugged Fidel, and I could feel by her returning grasp that she lived. The water was not unbearably cold as yet. The air that came through cracks and crevasses had not forced to overcome the underwarmth. I felt something slide against me, clutched and held on. It was a brave pine log. Could I recover it at this date, I would convert it into a flagstaff for the tricolor. It was our raft, our refuge, and it carried us to safety. I cannot give the extravagant processes of that long journey. It was all a rushing, swirling dream, a mad race of mystery and sublimity, to which the only conscious periods were wild, flitting glimpses of wonderful ice arabesques caught momentarily as we passed under fissures that let the light of day through dimly. Gradually a ghostly radiance grew to encompass us, and by a like gradation the water waxed intensely cold. Hope then was blazing in our hearts, but this new deathliness went nigh to quench it altogether. Yet had we guessed the reason, we could have foregone the despair. For in truth, we were approaching that shallower terrace of the glacier beyond the fall, through which the light could force some weak passage, and the air make itself felt blowing upon the beds of ice. Well, we survived, and still we survive. My faith, what a couple. Sublimity would have none of us. The glacier rejected souls so commonplace as not to be properly impressed by its inexorability. This, then, was the end. We swept into a huge cavern of ice, through it, beyond it, into the green valley and the world that we love. And there, where the torrent splits up into a score of insignificant streams, we grounded and crawled to dry land and sat down and laughed. Yes, we could do it. We could laugh. Is that not bathos? But Fidel and I have a theory that laughter is the chief earnest of immortality. To dry land, I have said. Mon Dieu, the torrent was no wetter. It rains in the Chamonix Valley. We looked to see whence we had fallen, and not even the chapeau was visible through the mist. But as I turned, Fidel uttered a little cry. The flask and the sandwich box and your poor coat. Comment? I said, and in a moment was in my shirt sleeves. I stared, and I wondered, and I clucked in my throat. Holy saints, I was adorned with a breastplate on my back. The friction of descent, first welding together these, the good ministers to our appetite, had worn the metal down in the end to a mere skin or badge, the heat generated from which had scorched and frizzled the cloth beneath it. I needed not to seek further explanation of the pain I had suffered. Was suffering then, indeed, as I had reason to know when ecstasy permitted a return of sensation. My back bears the scars at this moment. And that is the history of our adventure. Why we were not dashed to pieces? But that, as I accept it, is easy of elucidation. Imagine a vast crescent moon with a downward nick from the end of the tail. This form the fissure took in one enormous sweep and dropped towards the mouth of the valley. 
Now, as we rushed headlong, the gentle curve received us from space to substance quite gradually, until we were whirring forward wholly on the ladder, my luggage suffering the brunt of the friction. The upward sweep of the crescent diminished our progress, more and yet more, until we switched over the lower point and shot quietly down the incline beyond. And all this in ample room and without meeting a single unfriendly obstacle. Fidel laughs the rogue. Ta-ta-ta, she says, but they will not believe a word of it all. I had fun putting this one together, and I'm glad you came with me for the journey. I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving and a very happy Hanukkah. Next week, we'll feature our very first guest narrator. He's a wonderful chap and a good friend of mine, and I'm thrilled to have him on the podcast. I'll keep his identity a surprise for a week longer, though. If you like the podcast, be sure to check out our Patreon if you'd like to support us. If you're finding this on Patreon or on Audible or somewhere else you can leave a rating or review, please do so, or leave a comment and let us know how we're doing. And by us, I mean me. Patrons get early access, downloadable files to listen to offline, behind-the-scenes shenanigans, a Discord server for said shenanigans, and a bonus story each month not aired on the podcast. All the fiction featured in this program, except for Nurseryland Shootout, is in the public domain. Nurseryland Shootout is copyright 2021 by Christopher James Mayer. This production is copyright 2021 by Christopher James Mayer. Oh, and that Thanksgiving turkey meatloaf? Amazing. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next week.